I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Linda Jennings. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Um, very excited to have you today. Now, you are a botanist. Um, how would you describe a botanist? Or what is a botanist? Oh, man, a botanist. Ah, botanists come in many different forms. Um, the most classic a lot of people will know is, of course, taxonomists. So they're the ones who figure out different species in the world, and they figure out um, all the Latin and who's who and what species is what. Um, but then we have the botany of chemistry and how do plants grow, or we have um, the botanist who wants to know more about the ecology and the interactions that are happening in biodiversity. So um, I'm more of a generalist. I like it all. I like to know the taxonomy, but I don't want to do it. I love to know the ecology, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> and uh, and I love to know all the chemistry, but I definitely don't want to do the chemistry. So I tend to just like all of the plants. <laughs> I can totally empathize with that. Um, not wanting to do too much of one thing because that gets It does. Around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fun to pop around. <laughs> now, how did you get into this? What did you study in school? Yeah, so I came back as an older student. Um, I actually uh, went and worked for a while. And um, it actually started when I was working in a produce department, actually at Whole Foods. And I met all these really cool farmers. And I was fascinated with all the plants that they were bringing in. And I was from LA. I had never actually seen anything root. It just showed up at the grocery store. And I thought, great, we have food, this is awesome. But I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know anything about the plants, how they grow. And so when I met these farmers and I thought, oh, well, I think I wanna go into like horticultural farming and you know, do that. But of course, you know, you start to look into that and you're like, well, actually maybe I don't. And then I thought I wanted to be a horticulturalist, but actually horticulture is a lot about selling the plants rather than knowing about what was going on. So then I was like, okay, well, and then I found botany and I was like, oh, there's this botany degree. Of course, when I signed up, I didn't realize that you had to do chemistry, calculus, organic chem, <laughs> physics, and I was like, oh no. But oh my gosh, what a world it opened up, right? So yeah, I just, I found botany and I just was, that was it. And I took a night class in taxonomy, which was really strange to take a night class in taxonomy. Uh, but it just, that was it. I was sold. And I was like, I want to know how a plant grows, what's in the ground, how it makes this wonderful plants and leaves and flowers. And that was, that was it. That's where it started. Wonderful. Do you have a master's or a PhD or? I have a master's. Um, so yeah, I did my undergrad at UBC, um, which I was super lucky to have great teachers. And then I met this amazing botanist as well, Jeanette Witten, who's here at UBC. And I took this class from her and it was just astounding the cool papers we read that were so simple. She gave us these such simple, nice research, you know, really sweet. And then of course I went to her DNA lab and I thought, oh my gosh, this, you know, and of course this was whatever, 20 years ago, right? So it was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And so I just got the nerve up to say, can I do a directed studies with you? And she said, yeah. And then we did a directed studies. And then I said, can I do a master's with you? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how it started, right? Um, so yeah, I've got my master's. That's something I've learned um, is a really important skill to just you know have the nerve to ask people uh, for exactly what you want, because very often they'll say yes. Yeah, and you just don't think they will, and you're like, oh my gosh, they did, <laughs> yay. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you're not just a botanist, you're also the head of the herbarium at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum, right? Our neighbor. Yes, yes, I'm lucky. I've got the best job on campus. <laughs> uh, what do you do there? Oh, man. So I take care of um, two collections. Uh, I take care of the algae collection, which is about 90,000 specimens. So these are specimens that people have collected for about the last 150 years. 
all over the world and um, they put them on pieces of paper and then I store them and catalog them. And then I also take care of the vascular plant collection, which is about 270,000 plants on pieces of paper. Um, and I take care of all these plants, I catalog them. And the real reason I'm there is to make sure researchers can get access to these collections because it's a time machine of biodiversity around the world. Um, and so it's a great job because it's just so fun to help everybody out. Now, um, you're constantly finding new stuff. Have you, what's your favorite discovery that you've made? I don't know if I've made it. So it's funny, I was thinking about this question. So, you know, I get to help out researchers and that's super fun, but some of the best parts is also what people find, you know, when they're doing this. And so there's two components is one, when people use the collection, what they find in that collection. And so most recently, we've really been using it to study global climate change because we have documentation, really clear documentation from our collections of who's blooming and when and how much that's changed over time because we have these really consistent data sets. But for me, every day I open a cabinet, I find something cool. And that is why I have the best job because it really only takes opening a cabinet and you open it up and you're like, that is the coolest thing I've seen today. And like, even today, I have a researcher in, she's looking at the mints and I opened up a cabinet I haven't opened up in a while. And I looked at a European specimen from 1825. And you just go like, that's so neat. That's just so, and I can't read the handwriting. I have no idea where it's from yet. So I'm gonna be working on reading my handwriting later. But it's just so neat to be able to open a cabinet and just find some sort of history, some sort of neat note that somebody left. Um, so not just the specimen, but the people who collected. And so it kind of, it just, there's lots of stories to tell every day. What's the oldest specimen you found? That's always the question, right? So it's hard because we haven't cataloged everything. That's the big bummer about our stuff. Also, most natural history collections, I know. No, none of us have had the time to catalog everything properly. So, you know, 1825, that's about right from Europe. A lot of people ask me what's the earliest specimen in BC, um, but the earliest specimen collected in BC is actually not even in Canada. And that's why I always try to tell people, the Spaniards, right? So they came here very early on. And so they collect the specimens and so they're, they're back in Madrid, Spain, right? And so a lot of people don't think about those really early explorers and where those specimens ended up. But the earliest like BC Canadian specimen, it's usually about, BC is about 1879 probably is some of the earliest ones I might have, um, but very few, obviously. They, they, they had a rough time of it in the early days, so they didn't quite make it the whole way. But we do have a few. Oh, cool. So yeah, just around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's it. Now you touched on this a little bit, but um, I'm curious, what are you working on right now? Ah, so um, right now I am setting up a direct-to-study student for the fall and a co-op student for the fall. And so every year I try to think of a really neat project that we could do in the collection uh, that I could have a student who I've met. So a lot of my students are volunteers and they become my work learns or we hire them in different ways. But a few once in a while really pop up and say, I wanna use the collection for something cool and neat. And so I have this one student from before COVID and she's been volunteering for me at home, uh, mounting specimens at home all winter and uh, for the year. And she really wanted to do something applied science. And so I said, I think, I think I've got an idea, right? And so, I really want to tackle the red and blue listed species of British Columbia in our collection. So they've actually never been cataloged properly. They've never been imaged properly. And a lot of them I think are mis-ID'd and I think we're missing some populations because of that. So that's going to be really fun to finally have a student really go after that collection and see if we can really start to show a few more populations that might not be mapped. What are red and blue listed species? Oh, so these are the rare ones. So these are these rare and endangered ones that um, people have been collecting, but there's far and few between. And, um, and the interesting thing is, you know, these are rare and endangered for different reasons. And I always tell people, I, my actually master's was for rare, it was actually an endangered plant in Utah. So I studied a really rare plant in Utah. Um, there was only less than 10 populations. Most populations had less than 200 individuals and it was two centimeters by two centimeters. So it's a very tiny little thing. And I really started thinking about rare plants during my masters and what that meant. And so 
as much as we want to protect rare plants, what I always tell people is some of them are supposed to go extinct. It is okay. They're not built to be where they're at. They landed in a bad spot and they've been trying to make it happen, but it might not work. But it's the rate at which things are going extinct that we need to be concerned. The things that should be here that can't make it because of whatever pollutions or whatever habitats are being destructed. And um, so those are the rare and blue listed, the red and blue listed that we really wanna look at and we really wanna make sure we map. The other thing is the north of, you know, I always tell people beyond Whistler, not a lot of people have collected. A lot of people have just not collected the north. You can't get there. You have to get a helicopter. It takes money and time. There's no roads. Botanists are notorious for following roads, right? <laughs> I always say like, you know, not many people hike up with a press and come back out, right? So a lot of people follow roads. And so we really wanna make sure we map these populations properly so that we can track them over time properly. That's something I hadn't thought about. And that's not that far, Whistler. No, I know. And it's, I always say the north of the 50th parallel, we do not have enough collections for sure. Uh, speaking of which, you do go out and do some collecting yourself, right? So one of my favorite parts of these interviews has been uh, field stories. I'm not a scientist, I've never gone into the field, but it sounds like this magical place where just crazy stuff happens. Yep, it does, it really does. <laughs> Do you have any field stories you'd care to share? Yeah, well, there's so many and, and you know, I have a lot of undergrads who come around now and they ask me about this and I you know so many people in BC don't even have driver's license, you know, because why get a driver's license, you're in a city. Um, and I always tell people, if you don't go in the field, you just don't know. and it makes you, it's that hardiness about it, right? So you got to think on the fly. You got to just, you don't have any other way around it. So what do you do if you get a flat tire and you're in a back road that's 60 kilometers away and you have no cell phone, right? Um, you know, how are you going to deal with that? Do you know how to change a tire? You know, uh, uh, all those kind of fun things. But when I, in Utah was some of the funnest because that was my master's and actually my husband was my field assistant because he was free. And, <laughs> and trying to boss your husband around as an assistant who's also a scientist was quite painful uh, some days. Um, and I think the first population we hit, we sat down and I think it took about an hour of debating how we were gonna number each individual within that population. And it was a complete debate. And I finally like had to walk away and I was like, I'm not listening to you, I'm doing it my way. Um, my other favorite thing is I had to get liquid nitrogen. So if you're gonna collect DNA, you have to have liquid nitrogen, but I'm in Canada and my plants are in Utah. And you technically can't take liquid nitrogen across the border. So how do you pull that off, right? Um, uh, even my husband, who's an oceanographer, uh, you cannot take uh, salt water on a plane because it's corrosive, right? So how do oceanographers collect water and get it back here, right? So, you know, you have to sit there and go, okay, I got to cross the border and then find some university who will give me liquid nitrogen uh, <laughs> and things like that. Um, also, my work was in Utah, which meant that I was told a couple of times I should wear a skirt in certain places so that I was presentable to that area, uh, especially when I went to Brigham Young University and I needed to look at their collections that I was requested to wear a skirt when I went there so that it would make the people feel comfortable. Right. So, um, yeah, a little bit different than uh, most people's field seasons. Yeah, that's something I, I would never think about. But I didn't either. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> now, I'm curious. Um, I mean, you've, again, touched on this before, but would you care to uh, elaborate on why your work is important or um, how it impacts people's everyday lives? Yeah, so a lot of people don't really understand collections. I didn't even know these places existed before I was an undergrad. And so I started volunteering every Friday at a community college I was at, and me and a friend uh, would mount specimens every Friday. And when I started to understand the mapping that was happening and looking at the changes over time, I started to really understand the impact of what these collections could do. And so what I find fascinating now is people picked up on this about 30 years ago and they started looking at these flowering times and these fruiting times and we could really detect it in the collections. And so right now, what we're able to look at is to say, well, you know, we've got some issues because flowers are opening or either earlier or later than their pollinators. 
So we have a distinct issue that might be happening where pollinators aren't there at the right time or with grasses where they're pollinating with the wind. What if the wind stops or we have these fires or these environmental changes that are happening so quickly now? Um, and we're needing to see how is that going to affect agriculture? How is that going to affect our food? Um, so as much as it's happening on a theoretical level in these collections, it's actually completely applicable when you look at agriculture and you look at time change and to use these hundred year old, you know, and again, we're actually a young collection. You know, when you go back to Kew Gardens, you know, you're talking three, 400 years of data there. Um, that can really empower. So you can look at the past to predict the future. And that's really what these collections are empowering is we've got really good data from the past, which means we can now start predicting where we're gonna go in the future and where are we gonna grow these things? How are we gonna feed ourselves in the next hundred years? Um, and how are these plants reacting uh, to all these changes in the environment that we're seeing now? Are you generally optimistic or, or not so much about our future? Oh, I think we're pretty good. Um, I think we're going to be okay because we're pretty smart about things, but we're also a pretty self-centered species. And so, you know, that's, that's a bit tough because, you know, we, we, I mean, we've seen the reports just come out last week, you know, we've got to make some really quick fundamental changes in the way in which we approach our world. But economically, which country is going to step up to the plate. Um, and uh, we can be clever and we can be smart about it, but we have to be not so selfish in the way we approach this. Um, and so I'm hoping human beings figure that out. But what I often tell people is when people come to me about conservation and they say they wanna save the earth, I'm not so worried about the earth. I think what people need to remember is ultimately we're, we're really talking about saving the human race. Um, because we will possibly go extinct, just like, what is it, 99% of anything that ever existed has gone extinct. So we're in that boat as well. Um, so it, I'm optimistic. I think we can figure it out, but I think we need to be a lot smarter and we need to work together a lot more to do that. Great. That's a very balanced view. <laughs> <laughs> not so optimistic that we can, you know, breathe and let up, but also not so doom and gloom that there's no point in, in, in trying. Yes, we need to try. Definitely. <laughs> now, um, you've explained your, your work and it sounds fascinating, but if you had to pick like the best uh, aspect of your work, what is it? It's the interactions with the students. Um, you know, there's collections all over the world uh, in different institutions. Um, you know, I even worked at the Botanical Garden here at UBC Botanical Garden, but we didn't have a lot of contact with undergrads, right? And what I found is when I came back to the herbarium and I started working in the herbarium, I had a lot of contact with graduate students and undergrads. And what I love is that, you know, I think it was Shona Ellis who told me, the nice thing about staying at university is you get older, but the students stay the same age, um, which makes you really feel old uh, sometimes, but there's new things. And these kids are smart. These kids are super smart right now who are coming through here and they're very focused. And every time I do a project with one, it just opens my eyes up to a whole new way to use my collection, a whole new way to look at the world, a whole new way to use data. And again, just because of things like our scripting that's come around in the last 10 years, it's really changed the way in which we can use mass amounts of data and look at data. Um, and it just makes me feel like every day I wake up and I'm like, cool, I get to go to work and I get to find something cool, and then I get to talk to somebody about something cool. And every day is like that. So, you know, even if you're having a bad day, you actually know if you go to work, it can completely change and make a good day because somebody's probably gonna show you something interesting and cool that you never knew. Um, and I don't think many jobs are like that. So yeah, that's, that's some of the best parts is those interactions and that my brain will never stop growing because I'm here, right? Which is pretty fabulous. You've got a living collection of students. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, of course, not everything, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, you know, there's some, yeah, <laughs> there's always a, a cloud in the silver lining. So um, what's the worst or the most difficult part of your work? Um, I think like 
So I'm a planner. I tend to look about a year in advance because again, I'll see these undergrads come in at second year and I know that they have potential. And so I start trying to help lead a path for them uh, so that we can maybe get them in the collection for using in research. And I think things like COVID has made it really hard to plan almost beyond two weeks. You know, I, you set something up and you think we're good to go. And then suddenly you find out, oh, this part of the building has to shut down or, oh, we can't do this. Or somebody gets sick and you're not sure what's happening. And, and you know, that's hard when you can't really plan because I think what we've learned about COVID is humans are planners and we like to plan. Even if you're not an organized planner, I think most people would like to know what's happening in the next six months of their lives. And I think right now we don't even know what's gonna happen in a month, right? So it's hard when you can't quite plan. Um, and just, you know, like any day-to-day -day work, right? Where, you know, you have too many emails and you feel like you can't get to your job, but your job is emails, right? So things like that. And, and for curators, we really wanna get to the physical collection. We're very attached to our physical collections. I, I tell people they're like a second child. Um, even when we retire, we come back the next day. I always tell everybody, you can't get rid of a curator. Um, we are the people, the knowledge of that curation and that collection. Um, and so, you know, even thinking about retirement, you know, can be a hard thing to think about for us. Um, but it's the day-to-day. -day. It's the, it's sometimes it's a day-to-day -day grind. There's not enough hours in the day. I think that's what we all know right now is there's eight hours is not enough. Um, there's a lot of exciting things going on and trying to catch up to all that. Um, so I always tell people if I could clone me, I'd, I'd be pretty much better shape. Yeah, that would be the best. <laughs> the worst part is that you have to say no because uh, to so many wonderful opportunities. Yeah, I'm not good at that. That's the problem. Yeah. I am terrible, notoriously terrible for saying no. So yeah, that's I get myself in a little bit of a corner that way. <laughs> and I love that you're a planner and a planter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, I'm curious, um, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's impacted your um, your studies or your work? You mentioned when you went to that uh, university, you were expected to wear a skirt. Yeah, so I went there just as a visiting professor, you know, as a researcher. Um, I will say I ended up not going to Brigham Young to visit to get my liquid nitrogen because I wasn't willing to wear a skirt. So I decided it was better to avoid it. Um, but... Um, yeah, so you can hear it in my voice, I'm a female. And as much as I see so many females in science and engineering and bioinformatics, um, we're still treated differently. You know, it's just fundamentally flawed. Uh, and it comes from the core of when we're born. It starts there. And we're somebody's female and somebody's male and you get just like an organism you get boxed in and told you're not allowed to evolve because this is how we feel about you and you should stay in that box because it makes us feel really comfortable but i think breaking those boxes down and reminding people that um i am a female but i can do just as much as anybody else yes i might not be able to lift as much but then i'll find somebody who can do it for me uh but it's an underrepresented group in the sense that it's it's not equal quite yet, even though people do feel like, especially if you're a white female or a white male, that it's equal. Um, but I still think we have a lot of challenges uh, ahead of us when it comes to um, being a woman in science and the balance of work life for everybody. Um, so. I would say it's 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 there and um, it's something to think about. But I I definitely have in the last year and a half really thought about not so much myself, but what I can do for everybody else. So even being a female, a lot of people don't know. Also, I dropped out of high school. So that's another one of those equity and diversity moments where um, I think if most people knew that, they might have not have looked at me the same. Um, so I tend to hold that close. Uh, but when people do find out, sometimes they go, oh, that's so much more impressive, right? Um, 
And so I try to find students like that, the students who don't feel a little awkward, feel a little like they don't want to tell their story. And knowing that actually when you tell their story, you might actually empower five more people by doing that, right? And not being told, oh, you can't go to university because you didn't graduate from the right place or you don't know enough. Um, you just keep at it. I got denied university a couple times, right? But I just kept at it until I got in, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of that answer to that question. <laughs> That's really inspiring. I didn't know that, but I'm, yeah, I'm really impressed. And now you're at the top of your field. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's not the life I, I can definitely say, you know, when I tell people what you envision in life, this is not where I thought I was going to be. And so that's spectacular, right? Where did you think you were going to be? I thought I probably was going to be cleaning people's houses. Um, uh, that was about my skill set. I mean, I worked at Whole Foods. I worked at The Gap. I worked at all these retail stores. I didn't like it, but it made me really good at customer service. It made me really good at talking to people, right, and getting them to come out of their shells. And so I use that now, which is really nice. But um, yeah, I didn't think I had much of a future. When you drop out of high school, there's not a lot of future that you can see ahead of you. And now you're cleaning our home oh yeah well i'm cleaning the collection that's for sure and i'm cleaning up our biodiversity that's for sure <laughs> and i know natural history collections they do need cleaning oh a lot of cleaning oh they need a lot of cleaning they're very dirty <laughs> <laughs> now as a whole do you feel like botany is an open and welcoming science or is it more closed off and insular oh you know it's pretty good i you know the the few conferences that i go to People are really friendly. They really are friendly. Again, I love how much they incorporate undergraduates into um, their world. Um, so they're really, they're really good people. I will say it's difficult for taxonomy, I think is one of the toughest areas right now because it's, it's not well supported. And, you know, as I often tell people, if you don't have a taxonomist, you're not gonna know what kind of biodiversity you have. But yet there is no training in taxonomy that I can find. There is barely any classes left anywhere uh, in North America in taxonomy. We, have a, we don't have any botanists who can key in the field anymore. Um, it's, uh, they don't know the Latin. They don't understand the terminology. Uh, and we are losing the generation of taxonomists right now. So we have lost our 90 and 80 year olds. And we have nobody to train that next generation. So I find it really interesting when we have conversations about biodiversity, but yet we're not supporting the one people, the one researchers in the world who can tell us about that biodiversity, which is the taxonomists, right? Genetics will tell you stuff, but it's the taxonomists. And so in that respect, they do, it can be a little rough in the taxonomy world because it's quite competitive for the few who are there because there's so few jobs. Um, so I think me and Jeanette Witten and Wayne Madison, uh, these are two people who have really talked about trying to up the game on taxonomy and actually trying to really do something across Canada where we bring this back to the forefront. Um, Wayne Madison is an amazing taxonomist. He uses genetics, but he has drawn every single one of his jumping spiders. Um, and that's why I always tell people is art and science go hand in hand, right? Um, so. Yeah, that's, that's basically how I feel about that one. <laughs> it's like you were saying before, sometimes uh, some species do go extinct. They do, but you know, we need to know what they are. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have people with keen eyes and who understand, and it's not just having a keen eye, but it's understanding all that biology in the background. What made that species? Who's pollinating it? How is it evolving? Who is it having contact with? A lot of that information is just falling away now. And, um, and it's very similar to languages. If you lose that language, you, it's gonna be very hard to gain that language back. Well, your taxonomists are going extinct, it sounds it like. It is, yeah. I actually talk about a lot that I think taxonomy is actually needs to be protected almost more than some of these species, right? Now, again, you touched on this as well. Um, something that we've all had to deal with this year has been COVID. Um, I assume it's had a huge impact on your work. Have you been able to get anything done the past 18 months? So this is horrible. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's really hard because so curators are kind of funny. Um, well, you got a couple of things. So curators, we love our collections. We don't necessarily love people. 
<laughs> and and so us curators, so we were all like everybody, we were sent to our homes, uh, you know, back in February, March, uh, and we sat in our houses for a couple of couple months looking at our databases and answering emails. And I made a long list and I was like, I need to get back to my collection now. I can't do my job properly. My, my collection is a physical collection. And so we were lucky enough that they allowed researchers to come back into the collections. And as soon as we did, you know, we all started coming in at least one, two days a week, three days a week. Um, and we've been getting a lot done because we don't have to do we don't have the students and we don't have the projects that are happening and we don't have the disturbances. And um, and so, yeah, I think uh, some of us curators are like, oh, do we have to open? <laughs> We've kind of enjoyed this. Um, but for me, as, as you've heard, I've just missed the students and I've missed the interactions. So I'm happy to have everybody back. But yes, I have caught up on some things that was really nice to catch up on and open some cabinets that hadn't been opened in a while. But um but yes, we were able to continue our jobs in the collections online and then physically. So we were pretty lucky. And I have to dispute your um, your previous statement that you're not great with people because I saw some of your um, BD at homes and you were excellent. <laughs> well, so that's true. So I'm actually probably one of the more, um, what do you call it, mega, mega, mega floor, mega font. Like I'm, I'm flamboyant. I'm, I'm, I'm out there. I'm, I really love talking to people, but I do think it's because of the retail side of my life. I also did theater. I often tell people like, it's, I think it's good to go do theater. You know, we have to talk in front of people and it's really hard, right? It's very difficult to teach and not think about your own voice and what you're saying. And, um, because I did the theater and the dance, and then I did all this retail, I tend to be a little bit more of a salesperson when it comes to the collections and taxonomists, and I tend to be more enthusiastic to get people out there. But, um, but I really enjoyed the BDs at home because it it actually allowed, and this is what I don't want to lose with COVID, is it allowed people to come see our collection and meet me and me to meet them, and I never would have met them otherwise. And I have now two or three people who are now contacting me. They have bought presses. They're now collecting. It's so exciting to know that that's happened even during COVID, that we can inspire a few people to go out and start pressing plants. Um, a lot of people don't think it needs to be done. People think that everything's been collected and we don't need to collect anything else. But I keep trying to remind people, like even mosses, their DNA only lasts for 10 years, which I was completely surprised about, right? And so. We need the DNA. We actually need people to collect mosses. We need people to collect lichens. You know, we don't have enough lichen collectors, right? Um, and vascular plants, we can get DNA out of something that's, you know, 500 years old. You know, it's it's possible, right? Um, uh, but we need to see biodiversity changing over time. And the only way to do that is with observations. And the only way to do that is you need to collect and give me those specimens or do I naturalist and at least put some pictures online of what you're seeing so that everybody else can see this biodiversity. I had no idea mosses were so fragile. I know. And it's funny because their spores can really handle being under a big ice block for a long time. We've seen this with glaciation where they will come back. But what I think I found interesting is once you store them, because again, my vascular, my algae collection, you can get DNA out of something that's again, two, three, 400 years old. But mosses are just so thin they just they they don't house really well the dna and so it tends to just deconstruct and it's not useful so i guess we're not we're not going to be doing jurassic moss no no i don't think so not unless we can get a hold of some spores because spores are amazing just like pollen those things can last forever you're being too nice to them you should drop a glacier on yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <sighs> now you've painted a really fun picture of being a botanist and a curator um to anyone who's listening right now, what would you recommend for them to take as courses or uh, background experience if they want to follow in your footsteps? So I've had a couple of people ask me this recently, which is funny because 10 years ago, nobody asked me this. Um, but I've had undergrads approaching me and and it's really neat because I don't, I think when, I always think when people come to university, they all just want to be tenure track professors. And there's been a real shift this last 10 years in the students. And I think a lot of them actually don't want to work all the time. I think they're seeing work-life balance issues. And so I have had people approach me because I think they see that I've got an amazing job. 
um, where it's not publish or perish, right? Um, I'm lucky that way. Um, I have other people publish and then I get to like, you know, hang on and, you know, just help out. So the students nowadays, what I've been telling them is one is always volunteering. There's, it's great to volunteer. You get connected, you get, um, you know, we have a mounting circle that I do every Wednesday. And so we mount specimens and we usually have about 10 people in the room and that's all age groups, actually not just undergrads. And they get real life knowledge from the people who are in the room. Um, then I tell them, you know, what it really comes down to is a passion. So um, there's online classes where I even took an online class. So, um, you know, I had my degree, but we went to museum and I was like, I'm, I don't have a degree in museum studies, you know, what are we doing? And so I did a certificate program at UVic online and it really helped uh, so that I had the language down. And this is what it's about is uh, connections and language and can you speak their, their tongue and, um, and and those connections and i always tell people it's still it really is about who you know yeah, unfortunately it just is but that means you need to put yourself as you were saying and we were saying earlier sometimes you got to ask and say can i volunteer or can i go into your lab or you know will you take me on as a student and it's nerve-wracking but it's super important to do that um i've been really lucky this summer that Jeanette Witten came up with a really clever idea where we all met online once a week and we've been coaching undergrads. So we've been talking to them about all the free conferences that were happening. So this summer, almost every conference was free for undergrads. So Jeanette constructed the whole outline and she encouraged every single undergrad in this group to go and each one of them did and they wouldn't have known otherwise and i had one of mine come back who for three years i've been asking her what do you want to do and she goes i don't know and she went to a conference and she came out and she says i want to do bioinformatics and i'm like that's exactly what i thought you'd go into but i was waiting for you to find out right and so helping them understand the free resources um also, they're so worried about publications now. They're all like, all these undergrads are like, oh, I think I need to publish before I finish. You know, I need to do, yeah. And I'm just like, no, you don't, you, you don't have to. But there's also clever ways to publish. So taking a class here where your um, writing ends up on Circle, you know, UBC Circle is available to the general public. It means that somebody can see your project. They can see how you write. Um, that means you're out there. And so it doesn't have to be a peer reviewed publication when you're an undergrad, but I think people wanna get a feel for a style. But I also tell people what it ultimately comes down to is um, excitement. What gets you excited? And that's what you ultimately really have to think about. And you have to get your ego out of the way because your ego is gonna lie to you, right? Uh, I came to university and I thought, oh, I need to get a PhD. That was the first thing I thought like, oh, you can't get a master's cause it's just a master's and that just like in quotes forever. But you don't have to, you know, you really don't. Um, uh, you need to think about why you're doing what you're doing and you need to be true to your heart. And I knew immediately, I, as soon as I wrote a thesis, I never wanted to do that again, ever, right? I am not a writer. This is not my skill set, right? I don't want to write. But when you're at university, you always hear publish or perish. And it's like, nope, actually, guess what? Here I am. And it's not publish or perish, right? But I was honest with myself. And instead of applying for a PhD, I said, no, I think I'm done. I think I want to go get a job and I want to have a paycheck and I want to have my weekends off. <laughs> so that's what I tell students is really think about in your core what is it that you really want and you got to project 10 years out you really got to think beyond you know what do you actually want in 10 years and what do you want in 20. you're not going to be there your path is going to wander mm -hmm. but you do have to try to think of what you really want not what your mom or your dad wants not what your friend is going to do not when you go to the lab meeting and you think everybody's smarter than you it's what is going to get you up every day out of your bed and get you excited to go to work, right? And so that's what I try to advise them to do. That's really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Have a 10-year plan, but also be fluid enough to adapt. You have to be fluid. I think, I think COVID has shown us you've got to be fluid. <laughs>
And like you said, do what you want to do, not what you think you should do. Um, I've heard so many times the quickest way to kill your passion for any subject is to do a PhD. Yeah, yeah. I know. Even my husband was like, I'm going to get a tattoo of a diatom. And as soon as he wrote his thesis, he was like, I will never tattoo a diatom on me. <laughs> Everybody always says it. They're like, oh, I'm going to tattoo the species. And by the end, you're like, no, I'll never do that. No, let them go extinct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm done with that. <laughs> um, I'm curious, what was the most important course that you took? You mentioned a few, but... Oh, yeah, it's it's tough. So I again, I'm a generalist. I really like science in general. And I really like, you know, and I, I took these taxonomy, I took taxonomy like four times thinking I was going to become a taxonomist because I love detail. I love being under a microscope and looking at details and drawing and trying to see new things. But ultimately, I realized that it was so much more fun to do everything. It was just so much more fun to help and get involved in projects. I really actually enjoyed teaching. So that became a funny thing that I didn't realize. Um, again, my husband's always been an amazing teacher. I was always in, too insecure. I didn't feel like I would ever be smart enough to teach anybody anything. Um, but you know, you just, you become an expert. And you know, when you sit in a job, I've been in my job for 15 years in this job, right? And so, you know, I'm lucky enough that Nobody else has spent that amount of time in my collection, so it makes me the expert, right? Um, so it's by default, but I've gotten an opportunity to teach and it's been really fun. And um, uh, what was the question? Which course was the most influential? In yeah, so this was hard, right? Because I'm like, oh yeah, I did taxonomy and da, da, da. it wasn't organic chemistry, I'll tell you that. Um, uh, so two of the courses that I loved loved here and I was lucky enough um, was a class called the history of science. It I don't think it exists on the books anymore. Um, it was taught by the right professor. And that's what I always say. You can't just throw any professor in a class like this, but it was all about science and where it started from. So it started with Aristotle and the whole class and it was for a whole year. So it wasn't just a term, but it was a night class and it was a three hour class every night. You know, and I did this for the whole year and we went all the way through science, all the way to the present. Um, but one of the best books I read was called The Copernicus Revolution. And it was all about how uh, many people had to bring evidence together so that we could prove that the sun was actually in the center of our solar system and not Earth, which was, of course, blasphemy at the time, right? Um, and so it made me super attached to Galileo Galilei because that person is a human who was amazing. And during the Black Plague, going through, yeah, I think he got arrested two or three times for his work, right? And being very clever. So even having to write a play so that he wasn't writing directly, you know, about his thoughts, but he put it in a play so he couldn't be arrested. Um, so clever things that they had to do. But another class I took here, and again, I think it's off the books, is um, there was a class called Organic Evolution. And that was that was by Scudder. So if anybody knows Scudder, um, he's an amazing collector of butterflies in DC, amazing instructor who is here, researcher. Um, and all I can say is that that class every day blew my mind, just out of this world, blew my mind. And I was sick three times and I had somebody record the class. And so this is in the good old days with tape recorders. So we had little tape recorders and two of us were tape recording his class. And so I actually still have those recordings, which I hope to give to the archives here because there was nothing like those classes on the books. And it takes, it takes the right teacher to teach those kind of courses, right? Um, so again, you can take a good course, but I always tell everybody it's, it's whether or not you have the instructor there to just turn you on and keep you excited. Um, and I had two very, very good teachers in those courses. So that was, that was when I think I opened my eyes to a lot of science and I'm like, oh, it's not just about botany. It's so much more, right? So those were fun classes. It's funny, I took history of science at a different university as well, and it was also a three-hour evening course. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was known throughout the university, uh, you had to get the right prof, because there were two profs who taught it. And one was super passionate, and the other, his passion had died out about 15 years ago. And um, 
I loved it and I just loved everything he said. Yeah, but it, it also makes us really well-rounded. I mean, scientists, we can get really narrow really fast. And that's another thing I always tell undergrads is don't go narrow fast. Don't, don't, unless you know it's your passion, go for it. But if you're still not sure, keep it broad because the whole point is once you do that PhD, it actually defines you. And so you have to be cautious when you do that PhD and that master's because it can define your future, especially of course, those, those postdocs as well, right? Um, so make sure it's what you wanna do. But um, I think it's really important for students to really get exposed to a lot of different thought process and a lot of different science to, cause we're just gonna be better scientists if we can incorporate more knowledge in what we do. Um, but also knowing we don't know everything. And sometimes we need to go to other departments and say, can you figure this out for me? Cause I don't know what I'm doing, but I need your help, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, those courses are great. And I can see why you have an affinity for Galileo, especially this year, um, oh. traveling around uh, doing science in the middle of a plague. Yeah, it's, yeah, I know. This is it, right? I keep going back to the, you know, what he had to do with this plague. And yeah, and here we are. And you are a modern Galileo. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, that's also a great uh, piece of advice. Um, reach out to other people in other disciplines because yeah people don't you don't know everything and i think people need to remember that right you really it is about collaboration and reaching out and don't just sit in your don't just sit staring at your computer banging your head against the wall hoping that you can find some youtube video or some website to tell you how to do it right um, i reached out to multiple people who did not know me and i was so thankful that they responded um you know i even emailed the guy who wrote you know, neighbor joining trees. And I said, mine's not working. Can you help me? And he was so nice and he ran my data for me and he said, nope, it's fine. Um, that's amazing to have that kind of response, right? Um, and it makes a big difference in your own confidence and success, right? So. And if they don't respond, they don't respond. It's. Yep. Go find somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's more than one person in the world who knows something, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's good. No one is the repository of knowledge except for you who are the repository of knowledge on the BD's uh, plant Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I, I do feel lucky that way. I always tell people it's about three postdocs that I've done, I think, so far. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been really inspiring today. Um, I'm curious, who inspired you while you were doing your, your studies? Hmm. You can take a moment. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one. Um, I don't know. I don't know who inspired me. Or we can skip the question. No, it's just funny. I mean, I mean, for me, it was so hard coming back to school. It was all internal. I had to do it, right? I had to get my gall up and do it. And I didn't have anybody to look to to figure out how to do this, right? Once you drop out of high school, who do you look to to say, hey, how do I get into university and become a researcher? Um, but once I got into university, um, you know, I will say um, uh, they weren't inspirational, but uh, my husband was 110% supportive. And that was huge because uh, my family was not. So my family does not believe in higher education, um, dramatically does not agree with higher education, does not, thinks it's a waste of money and a waste of time. And so to have somebody who, when you're downhearted, can come home and they go, nope, that's fine. We're gonna work on this tonight. And I mean, the, the poor guy had to sit there working on calculus stuff with me and all that. But once I met Jeanette Witten, who was my supervisor, I think that's why I approached her because it was probably the first person I saw that I thought, well, I really like the way they're approaching research. It's not just the research they're doing, but also the way they approach their students, the way they approach their classes. And so I think that inspired me to think about you can be a hardcore researcher, but you can also be human. Um, and you can be obsessed with what you're doing, but you can still go home at the end of the day and enjoy your family. And um, and I really liked that aspect. And I knew I'd be able to do field work. I knew I'd be able to do lab work. And that was really great. So I think she really inspired me to, to become a, a better graduate student and a better person as I got to work with her and under her. And she's my boss now. So, I mean, most people cannot say that they like their supervisor and their boss for the last 20 years. Yeah. So I'm feeling pretty lucky. So I would say she's probably one of my bigger inspirations. Wonderful. That's great. Um, now you mentioned that you've got a lot of students. Um, so these are the people who inspired you, but uh, what do you look for when you're choosing your students? Ooh, so, um, everybody always tells me the funny thing because I did all this 
retail work and I, I actually always ended up being the manager. I just end up taking over. I think I have a bit of a strong personality. <laughs> That's what I've been told. Um, but I like to get things done. Everybody knows I'm a, I'm a let's get it done. Like let's not fuss and let's get going. And so everybody always says, oh, you're a really good manager. And I am because I can usually read people pretty well. Um, and so I don't necessarily look for a particular student, but what I look for is somebody who has something to offer. So I always tell people, I usually hire two or three students a year for different things. And each one of them brings to the table something that they wanna do. So some of them really want to get into the taxonomy and they really wanna work on the collection. Other people actually love organizing. So this is another funny thing about collections is it's really about organizing. So if you're one of those people who loves putting little things in a box all the time and having it all be organized and labeled, like this is your job. And, um, and so usually I'll find some student who wants to organize but not do the taxonomy. And then I find another student who wants to do the taxonomy but not do the organization. And then I'll find somebody who wants to do the database but not do the physical. And so I look at them and I kind of construct these three people so that the jobs are all being fulfilled that needs to be done. And then I put myself where there's the gap. So because I know how to do it all, I wanna have them have the opportunity to go with their strengths. And then if they wanna work on a weakness, we can work on that weakness. But instead of forcing somebody to do something they don't wanna do, I'll just fill in until the next student comes along and maybe they wanna do that. And then I'll just flip to the other um, project that somebody doesn't wanna do. And so I kind of figured that's what makes a happier place. Um, I'm pretty lucky because all my students have left happy. They love working in their barium. They always talk that they love working in their barium. So many students who I don't even think will come and work in their barium, they wanna come because they're like, it's relaxing. Um, it It's involved. They feel like somebody cares that they showed up um, and um, and it's, and so this is what I look for is I look for students who want to work with each other and want to make the place better and are excited to come to work. And I just, I just want them to have a good time and to learn something. And they always do. So whether they just want to box something up and they don't want to do the taxonomy, they'll learn the taxonomy because you have to, right? So, um, so yeah, so I kind of, it's not even so much of looking for somebody just just looking for the right person for the right job at the time. And this is why I often tell people, sometimes you're not gonna get the job and it's rough, right? We've all been in that boat where we've interviewed, oh my gosh, and you don't get the job and you just kick yourself and you're like, why, why, why? And you, when you're on the backside of hiring, you start to realize it's like, oh, cause your schedule didn't work out. It actually wasn't you. You're on the top of the list, but your class totally inflicted on something I needed. And I often let them know, like just apply next summer. You know, so they're not discouraged. It was just, it wasn't you personally, it was your schedule, which you can't fix, right? Um, so that's what I try to do is just make sure that they keep coming back in different realms, which is why we start with volunteering, then we do work learn, then we have a thing called YCW, which is Young Canada Works, and they can do internships, which is really fun. And then often they end up being graduate students working in the collection, which is great. Sounds like you value diversity of your team more than anything. I do. I really do. I don't want to conform people. There's no, there's nothing. If we're all the same, we're going to look at everything the same. And there's, there's no diversity in that. And this is why I actually also hire art students. So a lot of people are like, I don't understand. How come you're not hiring students in botany? And it's like, well, I will. But also sometimes I want an art student here because they're going to look at it from a different perspective, right? Um, it's the funnest part actually about my job now is we have a lot more artists who come into our collections and a lot more historians. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of contact with historians and artists, which we didn't before. So again, it just makes me look at my collection also in a completely different way, which gives me better perspective on how to organize it and make it available to lots of different people, not just researchers. So those are people who are at the beginning of their careers. Um, You've still got a long way to go until you're at the end of your career. And like you said, a curator is never done. Uh, they, they work till they drop. Um, but what do you want to be the legacy of you or of your career um, when you are done with, with the museum? Yeah, so, you know, collections are ongoing. They're always a mess. There's always tons of stuff around. You're always looking at it going, how come I didn't get to that yet? Um, and it's been 10 years, but you know, so, 
I already know that my collection's in way better shape than when I started. My data online is way better than I started. Um, but I think what I want to leave is this legacy of all these students and all these graduate students and all these researchers have attachment to the collection and that they're going to continue that as well. So I, I want to make sure that even if these students don't become researchers, that they bring their kids into the museum to show them what a cool thing this is, right? Or to show them that online. And, you know, I say like, these are our advocates, you know, um, museums and especially collections are not well supported. They're very expensive to run, um, understandably so. I mean, when you have 2.1 million specimens, that's a lot of work, right? Um, but every single student who I've talked to, I've taught, who I've discussed with every outreach event that I've done, um, every workshop, every online thing is one more person who's going to understand the importance of these collections and will advocate for it at the right time. And so if I can leave a legacy of advocacy and support to make sure that this collection is never sold to the wrong bidder, is never decommissioned, which is what has happened around the world, mothballed away, um, sold to private collectors, um, that would be what I want is so that we make sure that the next person who comes in does even a better job and that there's more researchers using the collection because every time a historian, artist, researcher, and even the general public uses the collection, it's that much better. It's not on my back to make it better. It's on my back to make it accessible so that all this information can come in and make that collection better. So that's what I'm hoping to do is basically make sure that our collections are fully open. It's a major problem in museums to have these places closed up and locked up, but yet the general public technically owns our collections. You know, we're at a public university. So I want those doors open. I want those collections out and I want to, I want to see people's interpretation of those collections so that I can incorporate that long-term. And that's what I'm hoping is going to happen is just more and more openness in these collections and accessibility. Right. And that's, um, incredibly important i mean especially i can certainly empathize with that um as i always say at the beginning of our tours most uh, museums only show a small fragment uh, of their collection and we have so many wonderful treasures locked away but we just don't have the floor space to actually show everything um, right which is why i really found the education and outreach important in this right so our our barren was locked away for years and years and years in the biological science building and first off nobody could find it because it was on the four and a half full floor, which nobody even knew where that was. Um, it was a stairwell, I think, that led there. So um, it had accessibility issues, right? You, If you were handicapped, you could not come visit us. That was a major issue I had, right? Um, so I was really happy when we moved into the museum because I realized now we we're really gonna have an opportunity to really show off some cool stuff. And this is why I wrote the grant for the 100 treasures site that we have, where you can look up our 100 treasures. And um, I wanted to make sure people, and I have an Instagram site, Press Plants. And I, you know, it's it's been dead for a year. It's been a hard year to try to keep up, but we're gonna get it going again in September. And I just, I wanted to show people all these really weird treasures. And my favorite one is still the algae that looks like a running chicken. And it just, it totally looks like a running chicken, right? And um, my other favorite specimen was the crushed beer can, you know, uh, <laughs> the specimen in my collection because they were drinking too much when they were collecting and they decided to make a specimen out of one of the cans, right? I, those are fun. Those are great stories, right? It shows the humanness of collectors. Um, uh, I think people forget that you have to collect to make these collections. And so that's a big part of what I do is, I remind people there's a human, there's an obsessed human being behind every single one of these collections. But a human being nonetheless, like you said earlier, scientists aren't automatons, they're actual. They're actual people, right? And these collections are really active. And I think that's what people really need to understand is there's a lot more that could be happening if we could open these up better, right? And, um, and I think we've seen that where people go and steal collections because they want accessibility. And instead, we should just open it up so that people can just see those collections. And it can't just be researchers. We've got, I think we all know equity and diversity actually means inclusion. And that means you've got to actually open up your doors and you've got to open up your collections and you've got to open up opportunity, right? And, uh, and I think that's where uh, not just collections, but most um, 
most of our areas need to kind of move towards is how we're going to include people into these conversations. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Something, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about what I should be doing with our museum. I know, I know. Talking. And it is tough because, I mean, you have a lot of pieces here too, right? Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because you want them to experience them, but they can't touch them because there's issues with touching, right? Um, and how do you put 2.1 million specimens out? You don't. But then we do things like nocturnals, right? Uh, those are fun. And we bring the general public in and we open up the cabinets. Um, and so that's what I want to keep doing over and over again is just keep opening those cabinets for people, right? And you're great at it. Ah, it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. It shows that you love it too when you do it. <laughs> it's a blast. Um, so my final question I find that uh, the world is changing so quickly these days, uh, not just the natural world, but the social world as well. And uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time they retire. Uh, so where do you see biology going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people so that they can anticipate some of those changes? It's interesting because there's, there's a couple things happening right now. We're kind of in the middle of it. I remember there was another class I took here, and I think that one is still on the books, and it was about Darwin. And I remember the teacher, his name is Beattie, actually, um, and I think he's still here on campus, except it was with two T's, not one. And he actually did his thesis on Darwin. And one of the lines that I love he said is that Darwin was living through Darwin's times. And, and so think about, you're trying to understand, you're Darwin and you're trying to understand what Darwin is trying to theorize and you're trying to now approach everything you look at and can I do this evolution by adaptation you know, theory and how does that work? Which is of course a big difference with Darwin and Wallace is that Darwin definitely thought there was a problem with humans not following this where Wallace thought, oh yes, also humans are changing based on adaptation of evolution, right? And this is why women were looked at quite differently in Darwin where women, you know, he kind of felt like, well, they're not that smart because they dress really nice, but why aren't they making the guys dress nice, right? If you look in the natural world, birds look really beautiful and it's the males, right? Not the females, they tend to look very, you know, they hide a lot, right? Um, but in humans, we dress up, right? And so I always found that kind of interesting. And right now what I'm seeing is we're living through this digital age, but the digital age is not quite there yet. And so, even the data that we put online is still needing to be looked at more closely. And also this thing with students now where it's like, well, ah, uh, you know, my literature review is this and it's all from online. And it's like, well, you know, not everything's online. Um, not everything can be found online. And this is my, when I start off my tours, <laughs> I when with undergrads, the first thing I say is, by the way, most of this collection is not online and that's how i start off and so you're going to have to physically come and come into the collection to use it because most of it's not online yet and most of collections in the world are not even close to being online yet so this biodiversity is all hidden away this history and so i am looking now and thinking well we got to get a better balance going on here. So yes, it's great to have all this stuff online, but we can't keep thinking that everything's online. Um, and I think this next generation I'm hoping is going to balance that better um, and not just take data that's online and take it for face value, uh, but really sit there and maybe question where that data came from. Um, I think we're seeing that on the internet with false news, mm -hmm. you know, and so this is the kind of thing that we have to really do our due diligence of where this information is coming from. Um, and mm -hmm. I think this generation of students is wanting those quick TikTok moments. We all do. Uh, they're very relaxing and they're funny, but be careful where this information might come from. And, uh, and so for the students now, I think there's a lot of great work in collections actually. And I think this is why I'm being approached more is we've got a lot of records online through the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, GBIF. And um, people are scraping that data and realizing the power in it now and what it can actually tell you. Um, and so I think for students now, I would just say, you know, you just keep going forward, but these collections I think are gonna end up telling us a lot more as they dig in. And this is why I want more people in the collections is, 
the more data we get, I think we're really going to start seeing uh, better information about how to approach our future. And I'm hoping these students are going to be the ones to get in these collections now to really start telling us what's in here and what it can tell us for the future. It's funny, I don't think most people realize how much information is still stored written on cue cards and in closets. Well, the other thing, too, I try to tell my students is um, I actually I, so I have a test. You know, when I do my work, learn interviews, I have a test. And one of them is they have to read handwriting. And this is one of the things I tell a lot of students is um, my son is not learning how to read handwriting right now. He is 12 years old. He will. I don't know if he's going to learn handwriting. Right. And it's a problem because our history is in handwriting and not every computer with OCR can read that handwriting nor translate it properly. So if it's in a different language like Latin. Um, so I think it's important, again, just like the true scientist, that you go to the original literature yourself and you read it yourself, not what an interpretation of it was. Because that's where we have problems in our peer review process, is if people just take what somebody said now from 100 years ago, I think it's important to actually go back that 100 years and read that letter or read or go to that specimen and see what it actually says. Um, again, I have an example right now where somebody found our specimens online uh, and it seems to have the wrong initial, which could change history if we can figure out if the initial was actually improperly put in because it actually could be a really famous collector and we can't make sense of it because they didn't have a child uh, with this name. And so we're now having to dig in. But as somebody who was the first collector of Mount Rainier, so told me, and uh, he was the first one to actually attempt and I think succeed in climbing Ra Mount Rainier. So he's really well known, but for some reason in our collection, we've got 20 specimens that seem to have the wrong initial. So we might have some extra added history if we can figure it out, which is of course the fun part of detective work. I'm going to have to practice my uh, cursive now because I know it's... Oh, mine's terrible. But I will say I've gotten very good at reading uh, calligraphy and uh, handwriting. But it's important. It's odd, but it's important. Well, Linda, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, is there anything I missed or anything you want to say before I let you go? No, this was super fun. I really appreciate you inviting me over to tell you about my job and my collections because, um, you know, I don't know a lot of people who maybe know about these places, right? And uh, and they're all over the world. So I always tell anybody, any country you go to, they have at least one herbarium, right? And uh, so they're everywhere. So you should go visit them and check them out and come to my herbarium anytime. I will show you something cool, I promise. Well, thank you, Linda. Um, thanks for sharing your passion and your stories and uh, your knowledge. Yeah, yeah, thank you again. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.